Welcome to the Provcast, the regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin. There have been few weeks since the beginning of 2019 that have not been dominated by news coming out of the state of Venezuela. The economy is crashing, the government is failing, there's a humanitarian crisis and a refugee disaster uh, occurring every week, providing us with new uh, stories and new headlines that are both lamentable and worrying. Uh, for the Trump administration and for those of us who care about human rights and democracy within our own hemisphere. And there are few people uh, that I'd rather talk to about this particular topic and about the crisis in Venezuela than our own Paul Coyer, who's a contributing editor here at Providence and a research professor at the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C., and an associate professor at Sancerre, the Special Military Academy in France. Paul, welcome to the Provcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. So Venezuela, it's, it seems to be just this almost uh, perennial weekly uh, news um, uh, story that we hear uh, that comes out that it, it continually gets worse. It's one of these things that um, one of these uh, crises that every time uh, you turn around every new day, there's there's some new story of tragedy, some new story of of um, this this failing state uh, in Latin America, which is on our doorstep. And uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, kind of how we got to this point in Venezuela. If you could, you know, a, a lot of people, they hear about it and there's so much going on and there's so much, you know, on the, uh, in their own news feeds, their own Twitter feeds as they're kind of going through, they see something about a, uh, a coup, they see something about a crisis, they see something about a refugee crisis or a famine, and it's, it's hard to kind of make sense. So for the benefit of our uh, uh, listeners, just kind of maybe lead us up to the point of, of where we've gotten to this point in Venezuela. Okay, good question, a good place to start. Uh, and, and you're right, the initial point you made about the fact that just when you think, uh, things always tend to get worse, and uh, nobody should ever say that things can't get worse, because then they always do. Venezuela is a good case in point. Um, a brief elevator summary of how we got to where we got was, uh, I mean, I could go back decades, but uh, I'll just give about the 10-second version of prior to Hugo Chavez, was Venezuela in the aftermath of World War II, was actually not only the wealthiest country in Latin America per uh, GDP per capita, but it was also actually the fourth wealthiest country in the whole world. Now, part of the reason for that was because the rest of the world had been devastated by the Second World War, but there was also a measure to a degree of how wealthy they were in terms of not just their oil, but their gold and, and many other assets. Um, they got rid of one dictator in 1958. They had a constitution, a democratic constitution they initiated in 1961. Through the 60s and 70s, Venezuela grew like crazy. They were a magnet to immigrants from all over the world in a, in a way not dissimilar to the, that, that, the way that the United States has been. They started having problems in, that led to Hugo Chavez in the early 80s when the oil prices started to tank. Um, they dropped significantly. That started to create revenue uh, problems. Um, Throughout the 80s, there was uh, uh, they, the different governments struggle with how to get a handle on this. You get up to early, uh, like 89 to 1993, the, uh, the government that Moises Naim, who lives here in Washington now, served as, I think, finance minister for. Moises writes, uh, Mr. Naim writes, that they were trying to um, get a handle on things then, and public dissent was starting to become an issue on the street. Hugo Chavez came onto the scene at that point in 1992 during that presidency and tried a coup. It didn't work. 
Uh, but he had enough of a following among the military that he was allowed by the government in exchange for him standing down to make a public statement. And he basically laid out the platform of Chavismo at that time and said, we, we stand, he gave a moral vision for the country. We stand for the poor. We stand for uh, less of a gap in income distribution, uh, the usual things that you hear actually in the United States as well. Uh, and we're going to be a moral movement. Uh, we're going to stand for the people that don't have a voice. It all sounded wonderful. So he went to prison for this attempted coup, but what he said stuck in, in the minds of many people and the imaginations of many people, especially the poorer class, and they thought, this guy actually understands us. And so he was let out of prison due to popular uh, pressure by uh, a president about three or four years later. In 1998, he runs for the presidency, and he won. He wins based upon both divisions in the opposition as well as the fact that he was able to lay out a moral vision for the country that caught a lot of people's imagination. Uh, so he wins. He takes power, I think, in the beginning of February 1999. Quickly, it becomes clear that he is, uh, he is not just about that moral vision, but he is also about accumulating power, about uh, getting rid of the institutions of democracy, gradually undermining them. Um, uh, he was about uh, marginalizing dissent as much as he could. He closed paper after paper after paper over the next decade. The usual thing. Um, uh, I know people that were in Venezuela at the time who had fled Fidel Castro. They were Cubans. They were living in Venezuela. And uh, they knew enough not to vote for him in 1998 because they said, we've seen this story before under Fidel. The rhetoric sounds great initially, but we know how it ends, and it's not good. Um, so that's, that's the brief summary. Things got worse and worse and worse in terms of the destruction of democracy, uh, the compromising of democratic institutions, the reduction of transparency. Uh, and the persecution of any dissenting voices. And that continually got worse. And then you had the internationalization of Venezuela uh, as a, uh, a point of malignancy in our own hemisphere that was targeting American interests. So Hugo Chavez aligned himself, when you see this still today under Maduro even more so, aligned himself with Iran and with Hezbollah, uh, with the, uh, the Palestinian Authority, with Hamas. Uh, with uh, China came in uh, heavily in about 2006 and 2007, uh, Russia long before that. Um, and so you had basically a rogues gallery of international actors that saw Venezuela as a place to get a foothold in Latin America through which to threaten American national interests. And these powers combined with Hugo Chavez and now Nicolas Maduro are doing their best to harm American interests among those interests being the promotion of democracy, transparency, and good governance, and free markets. And so ironically, they saw uh, Venezuela as kind of a, a very safe and, and stable bet, right? Because I mean, you have this incredibly wealthy country, you have uh, with immense, immense resources exactly. and oil production. And it was almost a joke uh, in, the, in the 2000s, right, where... Um, you know, the uh, there was even I remember there was a uh, Parks and Rec, which was an NBC you know sitcom, did this episode of where like some Venezuelans come to a little Indiana town that that um, uh, Amy Poehler runs on this on this sitcom, and it was it was just one giant kind of joke about how wealthy Venezuela was and how everyone had a mansion and everyone was doing really well and all of their you know they have right. all their uh, state services were excellently run and it was just uh, you know how America is so inefficient and so dirty and so nasty because you know we have democracy. And and all of that, and it was uh, it was kind of a, a brilliant little play, but it was it was a. Um uh, unfortunately, though, it's 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 not proven uh, to be. I mean, uh, not proven to be accurate. And there is now rampant corruption, and so we we've gotten to the point where last year, 
Maduro stands for re-election, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and he wins in what is, I think, widely just viewed as a rigged election. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's sworn in the office this year, in January 10th of uh, 2019. And so now take us to kind of this, this crisis has kind of spun, you know, with uh, increasing uh, speed. Uh, as, you know, on January uh, 10th, he's sworn in. Two weeks later, the Venezuelan, Venezuelan legislature, um, led by Juan Guaido, uh, declared uh, Juan Guaido to be the interim president. And this has led to this kind of massive, you know, power struggle between these right. two. So uh, uh, tease that out a little bit for us. Right. Uh, the constitutional issues at play, and we talked about this a bit before we started recording. So I'd like to repeat one of the things that you said, which is quite accurate, was that this is not a coup. Uh, that's a completely inaccurate understanding. The only coup that's taken place is the usurpation of the presidency by Nicolas Maduro. Uh, constitutionally and legally, what has happened, according to Venezuelan law, is that, as you know, as of January 10th, Nicolas Maduro attempted to take the oath of office based upon a completely fraudulent election back last May of 2018, a year ago. Uh, that left, according to Venezuelan law, the presidency vacant. Under the Constitution, therefore, the president of the National Assembly who happens to be Juan Guaido, and everyone voted on this in the opposition ahead of time uh, because they thought he would be a, a perfect person to lead them onward. Um, he claimed the, uh, the position, the legal position, of interim president of Venezuela. Now, the interim president's role is to, within a very short period of time, hold elections. Now, since he doesn't actually control Venezuela's governing institutions, he cannot do that. But nevertheless, that's, that's what his legal claim is based on, and, it, and it's solid. Um, so that happened. Uh, he took that uh, oath of office on the street before, uh, I've forgotten how many tens or hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans in Caracas on January 23rd. Um, I've heard a lot of media commentary, especially in Europe, uh, criticizing uh, the opposition and criticizing the people of Venezuela and saying that the people of Venezuela don't really support Juan Guaido. Whenever you see him make a public appearance, even now after the aborted attempt at an uprising with part of the military on April the 30th, there are, like I said, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of weeping Venezuelans on the street that love the guy. So he has massive support. And this is the first time we talked about earlier, the first time in probably 20 years that the Venezuelan opposition actually has its act together and is unified and has the people's moral support. The people actually believe that Juan Guaido uh, is the person to lead them forward, for one thing, because he actually had the physical courage to go out on the street again and again and again in the face of, of uh, you know, severe danger to himself and stand up for their freedoms. And so every time Juan Guaido uh, goes out there, it's tens of thousands. There would be, presumably, tens of thousands, if not millions, more if they hadn't already fled the country, right? So That's a, a very part point. of this, um, you yeah. know, tragedy is is the refugee crisis that this has, yeah. um, uh, that the political crisis in Venezuela and the economic crisis has uh, now precipitated. What uh, Talk a little bit about, as we kind of move out into the region, I mean, we now have millions of Venezuelans that are fleeing for their lives, fleeing for some kind of better life, fleeing for... For asylum into the U.S. or in, out throughout Latin America, uh, close to I think ten percent of the population now. Three yep. million. It looks like yep. it could increase a couple million uh, this year. Quite and, a bit more than uh, that. And so it's uh, talk a little bit about how this you know refugee crisis is uh, uh, beginning to affect the stability of Latin America and all. Yeah, whole. in multiple different factors. That's a great question. First of all, let's just talk about the fact that you have a flood of people going, especially into Colombia. There's well over a million Venezuelans there. Uh, back in January 2015, there were 47,000. So that's a huge, huge uh, influx. How do you deal with that in terms of infrastructure, in terms of healthcare provision, in terms of food, in terms of giving them work permits? Uh, 
uh, everything, education, uh, you know, social services. Um, it, it's just a huge burden on the Colombian government. And uh, they, to their credit, have really stepped up to the bat and done what they could. But And they're partnering with the U.S. government on this. But we need a lot of NGO work down there. A lot of NGOs are down there. Uh, so Colombia has taken the greatest burden in that in that sense. Brazil probably is, has the second largest number of Venezuelans. Then you have Peru, you have Ecuador, and you have the United States. There's about 80,000 Venezuelans here on uh, asylum claims, not counting the many, many, many tens of thousands more that are here, uh, you know, for other reasons, for, uh, you know, education and for other legal visas and have green cards. Um, in addition to that, you have the healthcare issue because the healthcare system has so completely collapsed in Venezuela. You've got diphtheria, you've got measles, you've got all kinds of diseases, even polio. They're worrying about another outbreak of polio, which has been eradicated throughout the region for the most part. They're worried about that traveling across borders with the Venezuelan refugees because the healthcare system in Venezuela has completely collapsed. Starting in 2014, you saw massive street protests in Caracas and other major cities that were primarily medical personnel, medical doctors, nurses, uh, physicians' assistants that were protesting against the regime because they had to watch people die from uh, things that were extremely treatable. And they didn't even have antibiotics or gauze in many cases. And that's gotten even worse now. Well, there's an energy crisis too, right? And I mean, then you have an energy electricity crisis. Electricity that exactly. many cities and many regions go exactly. without electricity Sometimes for days. Sometimes for five or, like, or 10 days at a time. That's right. exactly right. And once you have electricity out, then you really have no water because you have no electrical pumps to pump the water. So not only do you not shower and you don't like that, right. inconvenience, food. but you got perishable food. What little food that is there might be in your refrigerator and go down bad because you have no electricity. Uh, you, uh, you can't pump water just to drink water to live. Uh, malnutrition is now the leading cause of death among children in Venezuela. They have lost, I think in 20... I think the number was in 2016, the average weight loss, according to one study done by a couple of NGOs in the university in Venezuela, was 19 pounds. 2017, they lost it further, I believe it was 24 pounds. That's over 40 pounds in two years. 2018, the stat is somewhat similar. Venezuelans have called that Maduro diet. They have a great sense of humor. That's the only thing that, one of the only things that keeps them going. Um, but uh, but it's, it's tinged with a, with a lot of bitterness because uh, malnutrition is a huge issue. So you're right. Energy crisis, health crises, and then you have the security crisis that is bleeding across borders as well. The Russians have sold billions of dollars of not just helicopters that can't easily be transported, but man pads and aircraft missiles that are shoulder launched. Uh, and those can be smuggled across border as order, order continues to break down. Those can be easily smuggled and used by, the, uh, by Hezbollah, by ELN, by any of the other terror groups or criminal gangs that are active in Venezuela and create a huge security crisis. So one of the best analogies that I can I find to what's occurring right now in Venezuela is that this somehow is uh, it's it's analogous to being uh, the Syria of the Western Hemisphere, right? It's a, very it's a failed state. It's led by a, a you know a dictator with a small concentration of power. It's a massively kind of divided state with a huge uh, refugee crisis precipitated by you know uh, hyperinflation and uh, economic depression and uh, humanitarian crisis, and um, it is also not only does it share similarities uh, with uh, the Syrian conflict uh, in that in that regard it's also a, a proxy battlefield you know for the larger kind of global environment so as we begin to kind of spin out uh, into the region and 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 
draw out the concentric circles from Venezuela mm-hmm. out into the the Western Hemisphere mm-hmm. and then out into the broader the broader world. Talk a little bit about what uh, you know how the nations of the world are uh, addressing this problem. Uh, we we have a, a number of nations that recognize uh, Juan Guaido as the legitimate leader mm-hmm. and uh, de recognized kind of Nicolas Nicolas Maduro. Mm-hmm. So there's that kind of political element uh, among the West. Uh, but then um, the rogue actors that you uh, talked about earlier, which also include Turkey. Yeah. So you got uh, you know Turkey, Syria, Russia, China, um, uh, Venezuela. Um, that especially Russia uh, through Cuba and through just their own direct action is kind of in the way in which the United States is playing around in the Middle East and in Syria and the Syrian plain um, on Russia's doorstep. They now see this right as an opportunity to um, basically play on our doorstep. So talk a little bit about what that is looking like. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. In terms of Russia, they especially uh, are angry at us for Hillary Clinton's criticisms of the flawed re-election of Vladimir Putin when he came back into power in early 2012. They're angry at George W. Bush. I mean, it's everybody right, left, and center that they're angry at on the American side of things. They're angry at Bush for supporting the Velvet, Re- the Orange Revolution uh, about 10, 12 years ago, 15 years ago in uh, Ukraine. They're angry at, uh, at the Maidan, and they blame us for that. They're angry at actions under the Bush administration in Central Asia that they blame on us, where there was regime change there that uh, that was caused by popular uh, discontent that was massive, but they blame that on us. So you're, you're right. The Russians point to these activities and they say, you're messing around in, in our uh, in our back door, and now we can do the same thing with yours and we can make a mess for you. So... That's one of the primary reasons that Vladimir Putin basically gave Maduro a phone call on April the 30th when he was allegedly ready to flee to Havana and said, stay put, because uh, Putin doesn't care less about Maduro or his well-being or the well-being of the Venezuelan people, but he does care about being able to put a finger in the eye of the United States. And he does care about messaging Washington, D.C. and saying, if you guys really want to give me trouble in Ukraine and, and Syria and elsewhere... I guarantee I can make life difficult for you. Um, So that's primarily his play. In the Chinese case, the Chinese are not going to be as virulently anti-American, although they they don't like us either, and they want to completely reshape the international order as it now is to put them at the center of it. However, they have longer-term strategic fish to fry in Latin America. Latin America is a key part of their global strategy to reshape the international order and to push America out of its leadership position to gradually lessen our influence in every region of the world. Um, and they're doing a good job down there, or have been, with fits and starts. They made major mistakes as well. They cannot afford any longer to be tied to the Maduro regime and have them be seen as at least partly to blame for it. And they are. They deserve a lot of blame for enabling him through about $70 billion of loans and investments they've given him, which have kept him afloat. Then you've got Turkey buying their gold. Then you've got Iran and Hezbollah. You've got Iran, uh, an Iranian general that came in in 2009 to then U- President Hugo Chavez and his then Minister of uh, Foreign Affairs, Nicolas Maduro, and said, we want to train your colectivos, your armed gangs of thugs that go around terrorizing the population and suppressing dissent. We want to train them after the tactic, terror tactics of the besieged militia in Iran that have done such a good job of suppressing our own population. And they did that. So that's Iran. Then you've got Hezbollah and the former vice president of Venezuela, Tarek al-Azami, whose family ties are to Syria, who have has uh, a lot of ties with narco-traffickers as well. Hezbollah does a lot of the money laundering for them because of this international network. Um, 
you've got uh, you've got Cuba, of course. Estimates range. Nobody knows exactly how many Cubans are there, but estimates range between fifteen and maybe as many f- as forty thousand that are both bureaucrats that are deeply embedded in state organs, making decisions for the Venezuelans, for the benefit of Havana, uh, security personnel, military officers, and one of the key things they're doing, uh, as you know, is they're monitoring the Venezuelan military hierarchy and all levels of the Venezuelan military and their intelligence services because the Cubans know how to run a police state. They've been doing it successfully for 60 years despite the, they sh- the fact that they should have imploded many times before through economic crises and other things, but they've stayed in power. So they know a thing or two about this and they transferred all that knowledge to Venezuela. So you got a plethora of armed actors. So Venezuela is one place where a lot of these <clears throat> uh, actors around the world that are malign actors that want to attack and reshape in various forms the international liberal international order that America has led are, are all present down there. And so that's a, that's a major concern. Now, you asked about the good guys. We have uh, 53 other nations, or 54 total, that have recognized Juan Guaido. Among them are most of our European allies, uh, the Lima Group, most Latin American countries. The only ones who have not are the usual suspects, Bolivia under Evo Morales, uh, Nicaragua under that guy that just won't go away, Daniel Ortega, uh, and, uh, and AMLO in Mexico who uh, a lot of my Venezuelan and Cuban friends are saying, look what AMLO is doing. He's also beginning, at the beginning stages of dismantling some democratic uh, protections and, uh, and accumulating power to himself, and that's a bit worrisome. So, but aside from those, everyone else in Latin America has, has, uh, is cooperating. So what Juan Guaido's ambassadors to each of these countries are doing, what, what the United States is doing, we're trying to work with them now to help them to come alongside us because we've been most aggressive in our economic sanctions. So we're trying to get Britain and all of our other European allies and the Lima Group to come alongside and be more aggressive in their sanctions on um, all the people and all the institutions that we've sanctioned in Venezuela to cut off the money flow completely. Now, a lot of people have argued that's going to hurt the Venezuelan people. The Venezuelan people are already dying. And the people I have contact with down there, and I do on a regular basis, daily, several times a day sometimes, say, we don't care how much pain that we, that added to our already painful burden by what you guys are doing, because we know what you're trying to do is help us. So that's, uh, that's an important issue that needs to be said. These guys um, have gone through so much that they will put up with anything we want to do if they know that at the end of the day, they have a chance to actually regain their freedom. So part of this, uh, part of your expertise, and, and one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you today is uh, that this, your expertise is, is personal. I mean, you have a personal connection to this. So talk a little bit about how, uh, if you can, and to what extent you can reveal like your, um, some of the personal sources that you have and some of the personal kind of connection that you've got. Yeah. Um, my wife, first of all and foremost, my wife is a, is a Venezuelan uh, and American dual national. She became a U.S. citizen in November 2017, so a recent immigrant and a proud American nationalized citizen. Um, she uh, was just barely old enough to vote in 1998 when Hugo Chavez ran, and she remembers thinking, this guy sounds pretty good. He's saying some good things, social justice, uh, the morality of... Uh, uh, you know, she was always pro-free markets, but he was pointing out the, the justifiably pointing out some of the flaws in free markets. And we can all agree that there are some. It's not a perfect system. And she thought, this guy sounds pretty good. I think I'm going to vote for him. And because we do have corruption, we have, you know, inefficiencies, we have inequities. And her, uh, she was adopted and raised by Cubans who fled Fidel. And they're the ones I referenced earlier that said they'd seen this rodeo before. It didn't end well. They convinced her not to vote for Hugo. Uh, 20 years 
later, she's so grateful she didn't because she would have a huge moral burden to bear on her conscience if she had. She has many friends that were her age that voted in that election for Hugo Chavez and realized very quickly the mistake they'd made. And now they blame themselves, you know, you know, they were only one of millions that voted for the guy. So, uh, the, the, uh, you know, so my wife has one uh, big connection there, of course, but through her and her family, and then for my own professional connections, I, I've, uh, I keep in touch every day, sometimes several times a day, with, uh, with faith leaders in Venezuela, uh, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, etc., also with, with uh, political opposition. And, um, and then with normal people uh, through uh, my wife's family, which is spread between the Caribbean and, uh, and Tatura province near Colombia. So a lot of these people are just uh, simple farmers, and, uh, but they're WhatsApping with us. They're texting us. They're sending us photos. Uh, we have friends also that are down there that are, uh, that are attorneys that are, that are um, in various different walks of life that are sending us photos of the, of the street protests. And it's interesting. You see these photos and you see statues of liberty. You see, um, you see uh, signs with Donald Trump with, with all his big haired glory. Uh, you know, this bright yellow hair, they really do it up in a cartoonish fashion. And it's not because they're making fun of him. It's because they appreciate the fact that flaws and warts and all, this guy has actually aggressively stood up for them in their fight for freedom. Um, so it, it is personal for me as well, despite the fact that I'm a, I'm a self-proclaimed gringo because, uh, because of my wife's family and extensive network of friends that we have down there. We hear the horror stories every day. Uh, one example is we... Um, I remember getting videos on WhatsApp of uh, nighttime raids by the by the, uh, the special forces of the Venezuelan police in Caracas and Maracay and, and, and Valencia and other cities, where they would uh, ID people that were protesting during the day, and at night they would go to their apartment complexes and they just shoot them. So you get these videos where you hear these gunshots, you hear screams, and it's horrific. So I've been speaking with um, uh, Paul Coyer, who's a contributing editor here at Providence, a research professor at the Institute of World Politics. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, Paul, I want to talk a little bit about some of the religious connections that you have there in Venezuela and the state of the church and kind of the religious community yeah. in, the, in the midst of this crisis uh, when we come back. Absolutely. to the Probcast, the regular podcast of Providence, Journal of Christianity and American Foreign Policy. I'm managing editor Drew Griffin, and we're continuing our conversation with Paul Coyer, uh, who, as we've said, is the um, contributing editor here at uh, Providence, a research professor at the Institute of World Politics here in Washington, D.C., uh, has written a number of pieces um, on Venezuela and the, and the conflict in Venezuela and has uh, personal connections that we've talked about in the, in the first kind of segment. And uh, Paul, I want to talk kind of as we uh, kind of three-phase uh, close out here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the uh, economic potential that exists in Venezuela um, and, uh, you know, what uh, could come out of this, you know, potential um, uh, economic uh, recovery that could come out of this. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the, the religious component of what's going on and then maybe project out into the future where where we see um, the, the entire crisis going. Um, so in terms of like the economic uh, output, you know, here we've we've talked about a little bit in the first segment, uh, the immense amount of revenue that was produced in Venezuela in the 2000s, you know, one of the wealthiest uh, countries in the world. 
and uh, they made much of that wealth and uh, in, in kind of showing it off. But one of the flaws that uh, many people have critiqued uh, – uh, both uh, Hugo Chavez and uh, Nicolas Maduro of is, is out of all of that revenue, very little of it was invested in anything in the country. There was very little infrastructure built up and much of it was squandered. And, and part of that is through like employing and appointing thousands of generals, <laughs> getting them all on the government take and, you know, uh, giving them uh, investments in the state run uh, oil company. And, um, and yet, uh, even though all of this has been wasted, even though there's a massive economic crisis, uh, part of one of the reason why there's, there's such international interest, I would think in Venezuela is that there's still immense oil reserves there and, and people still buy oil. That's still a thing. You know, wind farms haven't quite taken over yet, uh, <laughs> That's right. you know, or solar farms haven't quite taken over yet. Uh, petroleum is still uh, a massive um, a cash cow for those that uh, have resources. Uh, so what does that look like? I mean, how uh, looking forward economically, what's what, how do you project out into the future of where is recovery even possible? Uh, is there still potential or, you know, where do we see it going economically? It's a good question. <clears throat> the recovery is going to be very long and hard. So even if you get Maduro and the whole regime out tomorrow, which isn't going to happen, but even if you did, for sake of argument, you've got uh, you've got years and years and years, if not decades, of rebuilding, and that's for a number of different reasons. You've got uh, social capital that have fled the country. Uh, my wife, for instance, has a doctorate and is a quite accomplished musician. Her friends, many of them, were in the Venezuelan National Symphony. They now have jobs with the Paraguayan or Argentinian National Symphonies, for example, and in Mexico, major symphonies there, and not just those, but civil engineers and others that that we know that have just left. People that could leave up to this point. Many of them have left and they've taken their skill sets with them. So you're going to need to try to find a way to invite those people back. Uh, looking at oil and PDVSA that you talked about, you're right. The investments there have not been made for at least 15 years, getting close to 20 now. Uh, that's the major reason why production has continued to drop precipitously. It's about 80% down from where it was when Hugo Chavez became president. So that's going to take literally billions of dollars. Now, how are you going to convince Western companies whose expertise you need to come in, uh, even if you had decent governance after this, how are you going to convince them to come in? You're going to have to give them quite uh, positive terms that they see it, so they see it worth their while to do so. Um, that's that's going to be tough to, to lure enough, uh, enough major investment in on the part of the West, I think. Um, it can be done, but it's, it's going to require them conceding quite a bit on the Venezuelan side. And even if they do succeed in that, and I think they, they could, but like I said, it's going to take years to do the investment that they need to do to get these fields, these various oil fields up producing again. And it's probably going to take at least a decade, if not more, to get up to the near the production level that we saw in 1998, 1999, about three, three and a half million barrels a day. So let's switch gears slightly and talk a little bit about uh, the uh, religious community in Venezuela. So uh, kind of on the periphery of all of this uh, talk about economics and politics and refugee crisis is is the church uh, and is uh, the Jewish community that exists in Venezuela and, and the Christian and evangelical community that exists in Venezuela, the Catholic community, obviously. Um, and they are kind of caught, right, in between this, this power struggle between the people, between the state, and are, you know, obviously the church and, and faith communities are tasked with with taking care of the communities, taking care of the people right. around them. And yet, you know, without resources or without um, uh, political freedom, uh, find it, it very difficult. You had a fascinating interview uh, with, uh, I guess, the, the former Rabbi Emeritus. Uh, Chief Rabbi, yes. uh, Rabbi Emeritus, uh, Pincus Brenner. Talk a little bit about that. Uh, talk about your interview and just talk about the faith community in general uh, there in Venezuela. Yeah. Well, I spent a lot of time <clears throat> over the last uh, few weeks and months talking to Rabbi Brenner, who I, I met about a year ago. 
Um, he now lives in Miami, where my wife and uh, and her uh, family uh, have roots. Uh, Post Venezuela, the Cubans that adopted and raised my wife uh, said, I think right after the attempted coup against Hugo Chavez in 2002, they said, "This, you know, now we know this is not going to end well. We'd hoped he might hit the road, but this isn't going to happen. So let's go to the U.S. So we're down there quite a bit, and that's how I ran into him. Uh, the evangelical uh, leaders of Venezuela I've been speaking with as well has been a prolonged co- series of conversations. Uh, and my wife's uh, cousin, who actually co-officiated our wedding, in a, is a Roman Catholic priest down there. Um, so the Roman Catholic Church in particular has long stood against Chavismo. From the very beginning, they said he is using the rhetoric of the of supposedly Christian concern uh, for your fellow man, which sounds great on the surface, but we know that that's not actually what he means. And so Hugo Chavez began a series of bombings of of, uh, Roman Catholic cathedrals and churches um, to send a point to the hierarchy. Get in line or you're going to be seriously uh, in danger. They didn't get in line, and they have been very, uh, very... Uh, strongly against Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro for the last 20 years. The evangelical community has been a bit mixed. You've had the influx of liberation theology down there, which has caused uh, some of the evangelical community to be sympathetic to Chavismo and to think that the Chavistas actually meant it when they said they cared for the poor. When you look at the actual results of their policies, where now you have the poor that are much, much, much poorer than they were to the point they're starving to death before they at least had food and water, um, when you see the middle class as virtually non-existent, uh, when you see the wealthy that have had their companies stripped from them and they've, they've left Venezuela, uh, the producers of wealth and the producers of jobs are no longer there because of uh, misguided policies that limited the amount of profit they could make to about nil, uh, deluged them and flooded them with regulations, uh, all for the purpose of taking over these biz- private businesses by the state and then having, as you alluded to, these businesses handed over to generals who didn't have a clue about how to run a business for profit or for efficiency or to serve the public's needs. So all that has led to this position now where you have no consumer goods, not just no food, you've got no toilet paper, you've got no gauze, you've got no nothing because nobody's producing anything. And to the detriment of his own people, when the outside community and the worldwide humanitarian community tries to send some of that aid in, some right. of the food in. It's not allowed in. Yeah, Maduro like shuts down the highways right. and the airports and basically forbids that from and and, and associates it with and, and much bluster and much kind of political rhetoric and... and um, Militarism and a coup right. attempt. Says that, yeah, it's some sort of, right, right. Uh, subverting of his power, and yet exactly. his people are starving. Yeah. yeah. So getting back to your original question, which right. is how the faith community fits into this, uh, you know, Rabbi Brenner has told me, and I believe I wrote about this, that the, the undersized but packing a punch way above its size Jewish community in Venezuela has, uh, has had a number of civic uh, action groups and civil association groups that have been active for decades there that are still active in the midst of the chaos that's going there, on there right now. And... Um, uh, uh, the synagogues have have lists of people that are most at risk that they would love to help. Uh, Club Hebraica in Caracas uh, has been a an oasis of peace and calm and electricity and water in the midst of a city that rarely has all of that. Um, the churches, both evangelical and Catholic, these people, as you've alluded to, they know their communities better than anybody else. They're well-situated for the day after, whenever that comes, to provide a number of different services. And first of all, to see who, especially among the young people, the teenagers, the 20-somethings, are most at risk for being recruited by the many criminal criminal gangs that remain in Venezuela, both the Colectivos, uh, ELN, which has about 1,100 fighters in Venezuela. Uh, ELN is the, the other... Um, 
insurgent group that's based in Colombia, allegedly, along with FARC, who has now reached an agreement. As we know, ELN has not. There's about 1,100 of those in Venezuela. They are constantly trying to recruit. Hezbollah is there trying to recruit. So the faith communities can, uh, they know who's most vulnerable to this recruitment, and they can bring them into their community and provide these young people with with a sense of belonging, which is one of the primary things that these extremist groups target. Um, they can also uh, be centers for education because the school systems have collapsed, the educational system has collapsed with a lack of teacher salaries, with a lack of electricity, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, healthcare provision, uh, food distribution. There are innumerable ways in which faith communities are uniquely well-placed to help right now as they are, but also the day after and moving forward and resuscitating and rebuilding Venezuela. And they're ready to do so. Uh, the people I talk to are ready to do this. They're ready to partner with outside NGOs, outside churches. Uh, I talk regularly to evangelical leaders here in the United States that really are chomping at the bit to try to get involved and to help. Uh, same thing with Catholic organizations, with, with Jewish organizations, uh, the Mormons, what have you. Uh, everyone is eager. Uh, and we have ready partners on the other side. One of the things that struck me about your interview with um, uh, Rabbi Brenner was just the, uh, and it, it kind of, uh, you see it throughout all of the news coverage, is just uh, the immense, um, the squandered potential, right, uh, that here you had in Venezuela, you know, one of the few, few places in, in the world that uh, Brenner, you know, talks about was um, almost devoid of anti-Semitism, oh, exactly. very tolerant, uh, it was yep. a place that Jews could go, and it was a tolerant culture, and it was a place for them to, to go and to thrive, and yet that now is at risk, both with, like, obviously the arrival of, of groups like Hezbollah, but it, just the lack of political stability in general. Um, and just the economic potential that you see, um, you see here. If you want proof of of kind of the fallen nature of man, is is the continued uh, narrative of where we're given a garden and we just make a gaping hole out of it, right? I mean, we just turn it and we turn Eden exactly into right. you know uh, a wasteland. And here you're given all the resources, all the money, yeah. you know, all of the opportunity that this this could be a little shining city on the hill in the middle of Latin America. Yeah. And uh, because of power, because of corruption, because of uh, failed, uh, you know, uh, political philosophies like socialism, uh, it's completely wasted. That's exactly and, right. And turned into just uh, a mess. It, it's it's try it's hard not to be cynical, you know. Uh, the, yeah. But what I what I'm kind of when I close it out here and just kind of talk about, like, we know in a sense where this is going, right? I mean, if history is a guide, which I think it is, uh, you know, to your relatives' credit when they saw this, you know, coming and could forecast it coming down the road of like, you know, we saw this with Castro, we know where this is going to head. Um, you know, what ultimately always seems to happen is that these dictators, the regimes become uh, more and more fragile uh, and to the point where they either flee or are killed, a la Gaddafi, a la Saddam Hussein, you know, pick your, you know, dictator and, and your totalitarian leader who uh, consolidates power to the point to where it's just him. And at some point, his generals wake up one day and say, we don't need this guy. And they, they dispense with him. Um, so we know a little bit about where this is going, but for I mean, play that out. What is what do you see a, a coup on the part of the military that removes Maduro, but then maintains some level of this like chavismo? Do you see Wang Guaido, you know, prevailing and overcoming what seems to be like almost insurmountable like military obstacle, uh, unless he can turn the military to to kind of take over the country? Um, or does this, uh, you know, become a, a a state in which the United States? has to, or, or allies within Latin America have to take 
an actual active role right. in in either you know, some level of this the horrible you know um, um, RRC and you know, regime change uh, language uh, since uh, the president now shortens uncomfortable words down to their first letters <laughs> you know the I word now this is like regime change like where play those scenarios out where do you think we're most likely to yeah. go part of the problem <clears throat> as we discussed before was uh, is the fact that there there are no easy answers at this point we had our best chance at getting rid of maduro on april the 30th and and as james admiral stavridis said that was a near miss on a success uh, it came close but it didn't work so now we're faced with right what do we do um We've had the head of Sabine, his intelligence service, defect. That was a big one. You've had other, you've had military officers, even some senior ones have defected. Uh, that's in spite of the fact that the Cubans are monitoring them electronically, their cell phones, their computers, bugging their homes, et cetera, to make sure that they don't. And, and if they show signs of moving that direction, they will threaten to kidnap their kids and their, their uh, spouses and, and torture them. Uh, even with all that pressure from the Cubans uh, and, and the other malign actors there, there's still a movement to, to get rid of Maduro. Part of the problem, I think, that has to be said is Maduro is not the only problem. He's the guy at the head of everything, so he's the name that everyone knows. There's Tarek Al-Assami, who I referenced earlier, the former vice president, now minister of uh, industrial production. Uh, they're not producing anything in their industry, which tells you he's not doing anything in that regard. You've got... Um, Diosdado Cabello, who is the biggest drug lord in Latin America right now, who was until the opposition won control of the National Assembly in December 2015, the president of the National Assembly. You've got many, many, many people uh, that are of that ilk. And in many cases, their fathers were also collaborating together in criminal enterprise 30 years ago. And so this is a whole, this is a whole network of people. So it's not just Maduro that you've got to deal with. And then you get all the malign actors have already from ec that are external actors that we've mapped out. So the issue is, as you ask, where do we go from here? And there are no easy answers. Uh, to this point, the administration in a unified way with fairly unified messaging from DOD to states to the White House, etc., has said all options remain on the table, which is an attempt to send, do some strategic messaging and, and put that pressure there of a military threat while focusing on the diplomatic pressure and the sanctions, the economic pressure. Um, I wouldn't say that has completely failed. It hasn't succeeded as we had hoped, but it is having a major success. Uh, the major success is that Maduro now doesn't know who he can trust. The people he can trust are probably you can count on one hand or two at the most. Uh, and that's, that's a good thing. You want a dictator in that position. Um, and that then causes doubts to rise in the people around him. You alluded to what's going to happen. Will a, will a general or an intel chief finally decide this guy's more trouble than he's worth? That may well happen. And I think that that's likely to happen. Uh, what's likely to happen is that Maduro probably ends up with a bullet in the head, to be, to be honest. Uh, the, more, the longer he stays there, the less likely a peaceful outcome for him personally is. Um, and unfortunately, the longer this drags on, the less likely it is that there will be a, a peaceful transition, which is what we've all hoped for. So what form more aggressive American or allied action might take, I, I don't want to really surmise on that, but it would have to be, I can say, it would have to be with Venezuela's neighbors. Um, Bolsonaro, the Brazilian president, Duque, the Colombian president, have both uh, been uh, fairly supportive of Trump. They haven't gone out you know, muscularly and said, yes, we want to invade, obviously. But, uh, but they, have, uh, they have said we would consider all options as well. Uh, Luis Almagro, the secretary general of the OAS, the Organization of American States, has likewise refused to 
denounce potential military force. Now, part of that was strategic messaging that I mentioned, but part of it is uh, they, they take this seriously, that they may have to do something and we may have to do something in concert. So whatever we do do, if we do something more aggressive, it will be in combination with Venezuela's neighbors, not unilaterally. Um, and uh, beyond that, I probably better not speculate. We've been speaking to Paul Coyer, who's a contributing editor here at Providence. He's a research professor at the Institute of World Politics in Washington, D.C., associate professor at Sancerre, the military academy in, um, in uh, France. And um, uh, Paul, we appreciate your contributions here to uh, Providence. And uh, you know, real quickly, it, you know, we exist, Providence exists to equip the American mind to engage the real world. We do that by engaging in conversations with people like you and, and getting expertise out there and perspectives out there. But what, what are ways in which, you know, Americans that are concerned about this that see not only the impact that it's having on our own country in terms of immigration, um, but just out of humanitarian impulses and just being, you know, fellow human beings, uh, what what can they do? Like, what what can be done? Is there anything uh, short of praying for for peace in Venezuela? Um, what would you suggest that they can do? Uh, well, well, praying shouldn't be. I know you didn't mean it this way, but praying yeah, shouldn't right. be discounted. It means something. no, not at all. <laughs> I said in addition to yeah, absolutely, right, yeah. Uh, and so yeah, definitely pray, yeah. And uh, and I think also be informed because uh, America, we have a system of government where what the people's the people people's opinions actually matter, and they can shape government policy to a certain degree through making your voices heard in a more informed manner. So inform yourself. Uh, re read my articles, but read uh, Eli Lykin Bloomberg uh, writes good pieces on Venezuela. Um, there is a, a colleague of mine that, at Forbes, um, Raposa, who writes very good analysis. There's a lot of other good analyses out there, a lot of people to avoid, but there's a lot of good people out there too. So inform yourself of what's going on in Venezuela, how it fits into the broader context of Latin America and the international order, uh, so you know better what's going on. Uh, and then uh, through your churches, I would suggest that it's easy to start, uh, well, not necessarily easy, but reach out to people in your churches that might have a heart for this, and then connect those people. You can start a church committee on Venezuela, for instance, and then connect those people to certain NGOs, and I'm more than happy if people want to you know, follow me on Twitter, it's at Paul underscore Coyer, uh, and direct message me or, or something I can, I'm happy to direct people, to NGOs that are transparent, that are effective, that, what, that uh, can channel the energies of these various Christians, Jews, what have you, around the United States and want to get involved, um, and you can do it that way. That's a concrete way to help. These are people that want to send aid to Venezuela, um, uh, and some is getting through even now in the current, uh, in the current conditions. You'll find little, little cracks in the walls where you can get it through. So there are, there are organizations that are doing good work, and uh, churches can connect with those organizations, so you're doing something concrete. Well, Paul, thank you for uh, informing us, and uh, we pray for the, the safety of your friends and family in Venezuela, and uh, just pray for peace to uh, prevail. But thank you for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.